0: Good evening, friends and neighbors in Internet land, wherever that might be, or whatever it is. To this day, I don't understand how um, information is passed through space by digits. I didn't understand how long play records could make music when a needle passed through the grooves and vibrated in a certain way. Um, these were transformations I understood as transformations, but not only anything I really fully understood technically. And so this is all kind of magic and mystery to me, and uh, so good evening. Um, tonight's show comes out of last week's show, which I really had a good time uh, uh, doing. Uh, my friend Jim Morrison came on, and uh, I think he's going to be here again tonight. It's a really nice feeling that uh, you're talking to somebody other than air, uh, and especially a person that I like as much as Jim, and uh, 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 and somebody I respect as much as him as well. Uh, Last week, we talked about the fact that the uh, head honcho, uh, one of the head honchos of the uh, psychiatric world, had referred to the DSM, what I call the Big Book of Bad Names, as exactly that, bullshit and a noble lie. And I talked about the fact that uh, this noble lie I don't think is so noble. Now, I don't think it's enough to criticize the psychiatric labels or the therapy that seeks to diagnose, ameliorate, cure, or fix people whose suffering uh, becomes described or judged under these labels. Um, I became aware a number of years ago that it will never change unless somebody comes up with an alternative. If these are, in fact, labels or moral labels for bad behavior, for unwanted behavior, then um, that's one thing. But if they're moral labels and we reject that term to understand and describe the suffering uh, uh, of human beings that come to us for help, then we really need another set of descriptions for what they are. And if, in fact, those of us are being paid to help people because we know something they don't know about their suffering, and indeed... Unless we really do know something about their suffering that they don't know, I don't think it's moral of us to advertise ourselves as those who can help and certainly not be paid for helping. Because the problem exists that if we really don't know what we're dealing with, then we can end up doing more harm than good. And I think the entire mental health industry at this point While individuals help individuals as a group, as a totality, as an industry, I do believe we do more harm than good. So what I said about uh, trying to figure out what to do with so-called mental illnesses, I said, what do I call them? They're metaphorical illnesses. And what do I call what I do uh, to help these individuals for which I get paid? And it must be a metaphorical therapy, that is, not a real therapy, not a therapy in the same way that a doctor who gives me uh, penicillin for a strep throat or a doctor who diagnoses uh, a skin condition that I have uh, and runs uh, and takes some biopsies to uh, send off for a lab to come up with a definitive diagnosis and, hence, if it's available and appropriate treatment, I'm not doing that. Okay? And I don't want to do that for a variety of reasons that I'll get into because ultimately I think we do more harm, as I said, than good for those individuals for whom we spend our time trying to diagnose what's wrong with them. And the whole idea of finding out what's wrong with people is a moral enterprise that I think lends us, ends them and us, into a very bad place. So what I did was I redefined the word psychotherapy to a metaphorical word. Um, Let me back up a second. When I tried to teach my students the difference between metaphorical sickness An actual medical sickness, and I'm using the word sickness here. Um, I could use other words, illness, etc. But then I get into a semantic argument with people that I want to. When somebody says they are sick with a strep throat, we know exactly what it means. But if they say they are sick at heart, what I would do is take a piece of paper with the word sick, and then put a piece of paper up, an alternative paper with the word sick in quotes. And I would say to them, You have a bad heart condition. Which word, sick or the one with the with the uh, with the uh, quotation marks? And they immediately, all of them, universally said sick without the quotation marks. But if I said we have a sick, we're sick at heart. Our heart has been broken. They understood completely and immediately that the word sick. It doesn't have anything necessarily to do with having a heart attack or high blood pressure or any cardiac problem, but that the word sick here was metaphorical. We're using the sick as a metaphor, as a stand-in for perhaps another word. But because our society is so involved with the idea of medicine and sick, uh, this is what we use. If I say, uh, I have cancer, I'm sick, everybody picks the one without without the quotation marks. If I say, we're living in a sick economy, immediately everybody understands that I'm not using the word literally, I'm using it metaphorically. And so we're dealing here with metaphorical illnesses, that is illness with a quote around it, not a real illness, not a real medical problem. And Dr. Alan Francis tells us, don't reify these terms, make them into real illnesses, they're not real illnesses. I think that's untenable, and it has to stop and it has to end. So if I help somebody, I'm not using actual therapy, which carries with it all kinds of medical implications. And so I wrote the word psychotherapy, P-S-Y-C-H-O, and then quotation marks around therapy. I thought this was brilliant. I thought it was creative. I was unhappy that the word can only be recognized visually. I wanted another word, which if I said it, it would uh, bring home the message that I wanted to, to make, which is we're dealing with something that is not real therapy in a medical sense, but a kind of helping, uh, and I never could come up with the word, so I left it as a visual word, P-S-Y-C-H-O, quotation marks, therapy, end quote. I thought I'd be famous, but I made a mistake. I wrote the book for my colleagues in the mental health industry And I immediately discovered that uh, I was persona non grata, that I was not high on the list as uh, Dr. Zass. I was much lower on the list because I didn't have his fame and I didn't have his his, uh, uh, persona. Uh, But no one was going to read the book. The people who did read the book, and there were a number of analysts who read it and gave me very good reviews on the book. They thought it was a really important piece of work. Uh, My first book really didn't go as far as my second book on the subject, which was uh, psychology, uh, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and the politics of human relations. In creating an alternative, but it was treated with the same kind of contempt and and, psychics, and as if it was some kind of a, dangerous, toxic waste uh, to be ignored. Uh, I had all kinds of problems where I worked in the clinic uh, at Flushing Hospital, mental health clinic. Um, You know, I was friends that were close to me were proud that I could write these books, uh, but again, never wanted to take seriously the implication Uh, at the college. uh, I was uh, removed from teaching abnormal psychology because as it was explained to me that the nursing department was horrified that I would be teaching ideas contrary to psychiatry, to students who nursing students who would be working in hospitals with psychiatrists. Uh, I really thought that I was going to help Zoss push the rotted house of the medical model over the cliff uh, and be one of the leaders in creating... An alternative set of ideas, which I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about that. Um, the difficulties were at every level. Uh, I ended up retiring because uh, of, of of the college, because of uh, being removed as the senior psychologist in my department, uh, with a very long list of of uh, accepted peer-reviewed publications. Uh, no longer able to teach anything but introductory psychology and uh, human growth and development course uh, where I could get into it but not cause any kind of damage uh, to uh, uh, the the, the mainstay of the field. I remember once I had a student uh, in one of my abnormal classes before I was taken from from that uh, group of courses, and uh, she stood up and pointed a finger at me and she said, you're dangerous. And I asked her, who am I dangerous to? You, the field, or the students? And I asked my students, do any of you feel endangered by what I'm telling you? And the response was very, very different than she would predict it to be. I gave her an A in the course, by the way, because I said to her what I said to all of my students and what I said to all of my colleagues. Why don't you read Zas, read my book, and I'll debate you taking the position of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, from the traditional field, and you debate me from my position, thereby giving Zoss and me and all of the other critics of the medical model the respect we deserve for having developed an alternative system and a critique, okay? And let's see what comes of such a debate, Because the debate never really takes place. People become terrified. And when you attack any religion, and I do believe that the mental health industry operates on the medical model as a a kind of a secular religion which defines good behavior and bad behavior, sin and and non-sin, and I'll get to that in a second, um, and, and, and... That debate needs to take place, but people in religion don't debate. Uh, There are people in many religions who will kill you if you even raise a question about the validity of of their particular religion. So, I wanted to, uh, let's see here. Hello? Hello?
1: Oh, hi, uh, Larry, it's uh, James Morrison calling. How are
0: you doing, Jim?
1: I'm just fine. I've been listening to uh what you've been saying. It's very interesting. You are uh extremely articulate and um I'm I'm enjoying what you're saying immensely. So please
0: Okay, so you'll let understand. me know at one point I step in it and and um
1: <laughs> I'm not going to continue <laughs> you know, to go I, on
0: if that's okay.
1: I'll 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 just say that it's my policy never to argue with people who are smarter than I am.
0: Oh so please! I'll
1: probably just be, uh, be still and uh, listen. I, I'm
0: I'll reading probably... your book, the first interview which you sent to me, and I have uh, to arrange to have you have a copy of mine. Okay, uh, and what what I I'm going to read a piece of it that shows me that at heart you are a psychotherapist with the quotes around the therapist, <laughs> uh, which is really the point I want to start making now.
1: Great. Let's go right I again, think we please. need
0: an alternative. To a process that tells people there's something wrong with them because the most awful thing you can do is to define somebody's sense of self as being damaged as having a stigma Uh, one of the finest books that I think everybody should read is by Irvin Goffman G-O-F-F-M-A-N on on the uh, damaged self I don't think that's the exact title I'll find out the exact title before the show is over um, uh, the sense of ruined self when somebody internalizes a set of judgments about themselves that are not really descriptive. Uh, ultimately, we operate our therapy according to a set of moral principles. But to provide understanding of people, we really need to have a set of descriptions. Uh, the, the famous uh, Niels Bohr, who was a famous physicist and philosopher, said you can judge something or describe something, but not at the same time. And ultimately, a good psychotherapist, and there are many good psychotherapists, and tonight I want to talk about the qualities of a good psychotherapist and how those of you who hear this, who want to find a psychotherapist, have to take some kind of responsibility to find a therapist who's willing to treat you not according to a set of judgments that define you as defective, that produce lifelong stigma that you can never get rid of, but as somebody who will help you grow, empower yourself, and live the kind of life that's full of love and creativity, which the bounds are not predicted. The bounds of your life are not predicted before you even try to start living. And so um, I, I think that uh, psychotherapists are all around with the quotation, and again, see how difficult it is. I don't have a word for it. I thought about psychoeducational and uh, psychoeducationalists, but, but that's not not. not it's another word for another group of people, people who do psychological testing to figure out where children are in terms of their learning difficulties are basically called psychoeducationalists. I never came up with a good word. In fact, if somebody calls in and gives me a good word, I'll quote them forever because I think that's, that's a really necessary thing to do, even though what I write is psychotherapy where the therapy is in quotes. Um, so... Uh, we need a way of defining what our central subject matter is because the subject matter now of psychology and psychiatry and psychology and social work, which is based on the psychiatric model, is to, do the, 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 to uh, define, to uh, diagnose, and treat mental disorders. And since mental disorders don't exist, trouble exists. Problems in the way people live exist, but they're not medical problems. Therefore, we need a set of terms to replace that uh, and define it in purely descriptive terms. Now, let me back up for a second, because last week when I was talking about Dr. Francis and those of us in the field who are still delusional, I never described why I thought we were delusional until we, we rid ourselves of the delusion. And that is the idea that a mental illness exists or or that everything can be reduced to biology, that psychology really isn't a legitimate science. Uh, And I'll develop that idea, if not tonight, then another night. um, comes from a kind of reductionism. And there are different kinds of reductionisms. There's a wonderful philosopher named Daniel Dennett who says that reductionism is at the heart of science, where if you can explain psychological phenomenon by biological, or by its biological underpinning, this is good, and the biological by the biochemical, and the biochemical by the chemical, and the chemical by the physical, by the particle. However, he says it becomes a, a serious methodological problem if you then, in the reduction, that the psychological doesn't exist or that the biological doesn't exist or the biochemical doesn't exist. He calls that greedy reductionism. And there is an enormous amount of greedy reductionism in psychology without even having anything to do with, with the clinical field where people are trying constantly to say, uh, the idea of psychological phenomena are epiphenomena or their make-believe, they're illusions. So, go back to 1990 in my life where I organized a conference for a woman who was a psychiatric survivor. And again, I'm going to double back for another second. If you really want to have some fun, boys and girls, go on our website, www.mindfreedom.org mindfreedom.org mindfreedom.org mindfreedom uh, is an organization that was started by a man named David Oaks Oaks was a Harvard student and as a Harvard student he had tremendous stress he went into a depression he was diagnosed as having a breakdown And I think the word breakdown is a hideous word I think that the person who's breaking down is really attempting to break out Right, And if they're given the right help, I think they can break through. But once they've defined as breaking down, like my car or my washing machine, we're in a very different place than if we said they were trying to break out. But anyway, he recovered. And he discovered that he could never get rid of the diagnosis this was made of him. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia, uh, schizophrenic, and Forever and ever afterwards, it was schizophrenic in remission, You can't get rid of the diagnosis. I think I mentioned last week that all these women who came to me with their sons in the last years of my my, uh, private practice who wanted me to diagnose their children learning disabled so that they can get up, leg up on the SATs or the MCATs or the law boards, Because if you diagnose as having this mental illness uh, under the Disabilities Act in Washington, you get more time and you get certain kinds of help in taking these tests. And I would try to explain to them, and I wouldn't do it because, and by the way, the money was great. an hours work for $1,500. How do you turn that down? But I'm a schmuck and I turned it down. I would say to them, this label will last the rest of their lives. If you are diagnosed as having a mental illness, it will last. Because since it doesn't exist, there's no way to ever demonstrate it's cured. You always have it. It's a stain. It is a moral stain. And if you can avoid this at all costs, you avoid it.
1: So, well, I certainly, uh, if I could just jump in for a second. Please. I- I've, I've got to say that I totally agree with your uh, premise that uh, uh, avoiding inappropriate diagnoses is incredibly important, and you gave two uh, terrific examples. One, the uh, the professional individual whose name I've now lost. Again, another senior moment has struck, uh, who was, uh, it sounds to me, uh, uh inappropriately diagnosed as having schizophrenia um and this was a uh, as as you're aware many years ago uh when uh, you and I were coming up in the profession um it was uh, fairly common uh, quite common to uh in American mental health circles to uh diagnose anybody who had uh, just about anything uh that even smacked of psychosis as having schizophrenia yeah yeah and yeah. that is uh of course that's one of the uh one of the benefits not of the d s m particularly but of the um some of the documents that uh, preceded the DSM, uh, DSM-3 in 1980. That was the first one that had any diagnostic criteria attached to it. One of the benefits was that uh, uh, American uh, psychiatric practice has since then fallen more into accord with uh, the rest of the world in terms of how uh, schizophrenia is diagnosed. Yes. Well, we uh, won't get into this.
0: tonight. I, I appreciate the comment why I believe schizophrenia doesn't exist and that all diagnosis shouldn't be made, but <laughs> because that's something for another time, right. right? Because if I'm going to be consistent, I don't believe that the word diagnosis fits for somebody's struggle to adapt to the world, given their abilities at a given moment in a situation Uh, that they're having more and more difficulty adapting to. In other words, I think that hallucinations... There's a wonderful book I quoted in my book about hallucinations, and there are many different reasons for people to hallucinate, not the least of which uh, are people who have religious conviction. I had a patient who was born in an agrarian section of of, um, Puerto Rico who was shunned because she was the only one in the village who really couldn't hear God. And I always laugh at that, by the way. Americans are supposed to be religious. If you pray to God, you're religious. If God answers, you're schizophrenic. (laughs) You're having a serious problem. Hey, that's arrogant. Maybe God is listening and responding to some people. Um, And that's not going to be where I'm on the page. So my notion is the whole notion of diagnosis and symptom, the word symptom. And I respect you, and and I know where you're coming from. But if I was to replace the field, those words would really disappear entirely. They would be gone. They wouldn't exist.
1: Right? You understand
0: where I'm I'm coming from?
1: I I understand that. And uh, my my business is not to argue with you on that point.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, no, I know. And (laughs) we're not going to argue, but I feel so strongly about that, that when I create an alternative description of human problems there is no medicine in it unless of course we can diagnose something medical and by the way you and i had a discussion about melancholia
1: uh-huh
0: and where did i come up with an article recently i think it was in the times that maybe there is a melancholia that has a biological base to it right and the apa that didn't put it into the dsm 5 and who was it that said was it was it greenberg who said this yes He said if that existed, they didn't want it in because it showed up, the lack of any kind of medical underpinning for all the rest of the so-called diagnoses.
1: Yeah, well, of course, it it does show up as a specifier for... Yes, um, Yes. and if that's... Then
0: I accept it as a medical diagnosis to be treated by medicine. Right. But but the rest of it, you know, all of the how many social workers there are doing psychotherapy who are licensed to treat all the diagnostic categories in the DSM. If these were real medical problems, real medical problems, they couldn't be done that way. If I tried to treat somebody with a true medical problem, if I tried to treat diabetes or or cancer, I'd be put in jail as I deserve to be. But the fact that non-medical people can be given license to treat what are supposedly medical problems is more evidence for me that they're not medical problems and I want a language and a description and something that helps that avoids all medical terminology. And that's really where I'm coming from.
1: I I, I suspect that I'm saying something now that you don't want to talk about uh, on this program at any rate, which is fine, but... Uh, I, I would just say that I'm, I'm wondering if if uh, we are having, you and I are having, uh, maybe different uh, notions of what the term medical disorder actually means.
0: Okay. And you know what, Jim? You and I will do this privately. And then maybe, maybe we'll do a show about it. Okay. Because I think that would be very important.
1: Right. Because so if I'll... I'm
0: misusing the term medical, as you know, in other words, I'm using it as having a, a diagnosable, definable medical problem, something that could be seen with X-rays, something that can be seen with with um, blood tests, something that could be seen uh, in the way most medical problems are defined, and even if we don't have those specific problems, it's understood that we will define them. And I don't believe, based on 150 years of searching for the problems that cause anxiety and depression, except perhaps with this melancholia, mm-hmm. this, this subset of what looks like depression is melancholia, I don't believe that's ever going to happen. Right. So I'm going to go on because I really do want to provide my listeners and you and whoever else is listened what my vision of an alternative dealing with human suffering and happiness that now is held with this medical terminology and some of the underlying assumptions of it uh, in the current mental health industry.
1: So uh, I'm going to listen. I think I'm going to ring off uh, the the line and uh, just listen to you for the rest of the uh, show then. Okay. Okay.
0: Take care. Um, So where am I? if we're going to do psychotherapy we need to start with what we define or I define anyway as a psychological issue and I had said that Alan Francis and the rest of us are delusional in that we're constantly looking and using a set of concepts that are psychological and basis and then pretending that they're illusions or that they're not important so in 1990, I organized that conference I mentioned earlier, and in this conference, uh, there was a group of high-powered researchers uh, operating uh, that were talking about uh, understanding the biological basis of hyperactivity. And when I provided, and there was a number of people. This, by the way, this conference was organized by a psychiatric survivor. When I mentioned earlier the uh, mindfreedom.org. David Oak started a group of people who now have about 50,000 nationally, 50,000 people, who refer to themselves as psychiatric survivors. Now, be careful when you hear that. These are not people who are survivors of mental illness. These are people who are survivors of psychiatry. That's how they define themselves. So there are cancer survivors and diabetes survivors, all kinds of survivor groups, but these are people who believe they have been able to survive the treatments given them by the mental health industry and want nothing to do with them. Uh, and that's a lot of people. So when, when, when we're talking about we need another language, where do we start? So this, this person now, when we had this debate in the auditorium, accused me of being a dualist. All right, that's a dirty word. That means I say there's a mind, there's a body, and somehow they're separate. And of course, I didn't have the time to show him that I believe that the word mind shouldn't be a noun, but should be a verb, that we are embodied psychological beings. And that without a brain and a body and eyes and ears and motor systems, there'd be no psychological phenomenon, but that the psychological phenomenon can't be reduced to the biological, except by distorting what a human being is. So at the end of his meeting, at this meeting, I said to him, uh, "We're going now?" And he said, "I'm going to lunch." And I said, "Oh, where are you going to go?" He says, "Well, I like a deli. That's a few blocks from here. I think these were people at the, one of the medical centers down in lower Manhattan. And I said to him, those are good sentences. I am going to lunch. I like a delicatessen sandwich. And I said to him, what is the word I refer to in the sentence? What does I mean? And now he stared at me and walked away. Well let me ask you, if Jim is still listening, is there anything grammatically or psychologically, syntactically wrong with the sentence, I like roast beef, I am going for lunch, I believe they are genuine sentences and the word I refers to what we call our self in the third person It happened to me, myself, and that while the self cannot be found in the brain, it wouldn't exist without the brain, the self we experience as more real than anything around us. And if an individual, because it's happened to me and people I know, were to have a patient come in and say, I don't exist like so much of science keeps insisting, it doesn't exist, the self is, is, is non-existent, we are our brains, and said to the doctor, I am my brain and there I don't exist as a self, they would be given very heavy level diagnosis. They'd be in real trouble within the mental health system. We believe we are a self. We experience ourselves doing things. And it's amazing the literature in the psychology science that tries to show that the self is not real. Well, it doesn't matter to me that so many of the decisions made by the self are outside of consciousness, or even that we make our decisions and what we call the self uh, takes place that that our awareness that we have made a decision occurs something after a fraction of a second after the self uh, the brain has already made this, that we have made the, the, the this decision see so you don 't even have language proper language for this uh, uh unconsciously without consciousness it doesn 't matter when we feel our self is, is is dissolving as with alzheimer 's it creates a terror that's worse than ca- terror of cancer, that's that worth the terror uh, that we're about to die. The idea that our self is insane, that it can't be trusted, that our decisions are uh, null and void, is a terror that I believe is an existential terror worse than any terror any of us could uh, ever experience otherwise. Death. Is not as terrifying as the idea that our self won't continue to exist. And 98, 97, 98% of the human race believes that when they die, their conscious self, which is referred to religiously as a soul, will continue to exist. And so when I sit down with somebody, I realize I am talking about a person as a self to a self. And that self requires respect, that self requires a, a feeling that they're being understood. And in fact, Jim in his book talks about the diagnosis, the first interview should start with free speech, which establishes you as someone who cares enough to listen to your patient's concerns. And I would broaden that, that they are a self worth hearing. And the damage I believe we do to people by our labels, and this is not just labels within the psychiatric field or the psychological field, but when we reduce people to non-human status, when we dehumanize people, is the major cause of so much of the misery of human existence when people internalize the fact that they're not worth being heard, that they don't matter. And over the years on this uh, uh, series I have done a number of shows where I discuss the fact that if you want to help somebody, they have to feel that they matter to you. And that, one of the goals you're going to have for them in your therapy with quotes, is that they matter to other people, that they matter that they're alive, that they have an importance that their decisions carry weight. And out of that comes uh, a help for moral problems. Uh, I recognize that all of us have been victims of something in the course of growing up. And for a number of years now, we've seen what some psychologists and sociologists call victimology, where individuals are, are seen as permanent victims and hence, or the victim of a disease in which it's hopeless for them ever to change. They're locked in a kind of a limbo in which they're not taken seriously, that they can develop into a moral being whose decisions have weight and consequence for which they take responsibility. The word responsibility doesn't exist within a disease model. I am not responsible for my cancer. I am responsible for the doctor I pick and I'm responsible for the 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 uh, uh how I go about my treatment, but the symptoms of my cancer I am not responsible for. And we must hold each other responsible as responsible decision-making beings as selves with identities that don't preclude an idea that we could be responsible. Uh, Otherwise, we're stuck in a limbo and we're literally to be destroyed. Let me tell you a quick story. This was the story that ended my career at Flushing Hospital Mental Health Clinic. I worked with a woman, a number of women. Well, let me tell you what happened. The roof of Creedmoor Hospital, which was a mental health, State Hospital in Queens, a dreadful place, a dreadful place, a dreadful place to be. And I discovered a dreadful place to work, a place of great hopelessness. There should have been a big sign over the door: "Abandon all hope, ye who enter," because nobody came out of that without a, a diagnosis that pinned them for the rest of their lives. Uh, um, anyway. The roof collapsed and my clinic, which was having all kinds of economic problems and social problems because a large number of Asians had moved into flushing and they handled their mental health difficulties, not by calling them mental health difficulties, but within the family and with the society and with all kinds of social health groups within that community, Um, which is another interesting story. Uh, I wonder who does better. People who are restored to their families and their communities for support uh, or for people who end up with uh our a set of assumptions that they're somehow ill sick anyway uh one of the women I work with was a lovely person who uh, was a had been a CEO of a large corporation in Manhattan, and she came from a very very dysfunctional family. Uh, And one of the problems was she had a younger brother for whom her mother made her responsible in the course of her growing up for his drug addiction. And she went through terrible stress trying to rescue this young man and trying to manage her career and manage her social relationships. And she had, again, what we call a breakdown. She ended up at Creedmoor for a period of time. And for the rest of her life was told you have an illness that can't be cured. It is in remission. And if you put yourself under stress, you're going to have a breakdown. The doctors who came into our clinic now were state hospital psychiatrists. And I wish, I'm sorry that uh, Jim got off the line, because I'd like to ask him uh, what about a person whose entire career as a medical doctor uh, is spent in a state hospital? Uh, I met a number of these people in my clinic. They were the most depressed, the most angry, the most – they didn't talk. And her particular doctor, which she had been following for about 15 years since her so-called breakdown, was one of the angriest, nastiest men that any of us had met. And while I wasn't very popular for saying what I was saying, I was still a hell of a lot more popular – Uh, than this individual who never showed up at a social uh, agent because this whole place worked like a family in which there was a lot of social activity. And it really, in many ways, was a wonderful place to work. Well, anyway, she started to talk to me. She would like to do some of the things she never had done for 15 years since her breakdown. And I said, what would you like to do? And she said, well, I used to have uh, teas and luncheons, for my workers, the people under me, and for my friends. So we would get together, and we would open a bottle of sherry, we would have tea and cake and some luncheon, and we had a wonderful time. So I said, well, what stops you from creating a luncheon? She said, do you think I could do that? And my response is, do you think you can do that? I'm not going to take responsibility for her decision, but if she decides this, that's her decision. And of course, secretly, I'm hoping she'll do this because her life was such an empty misery. Taking psychotropic drugs. At the time, by the way, Thorazine was the drug. She was developing tardive dyskinesia, the symptoms of tardive dyskinesia. She had this uh, movement with her mouth and tremors in her hands. Uh, and, And she said, I'd love to do this. So she called up some people. She went shopping, and she planned to have this luncheon. Does this sound good? Sound good to me. The day of the luncheon came and went. I wasn't in the clinic that day. And when I showed up the next day, she was supposed to have, she had an appointment with me. And I see the appointment is crossed out. So I said to the secretary, what happened to Mrs. So-and-so? And she said to me, oh, uh... She's been transferred to another therapist. I said, what? Apparently what happened is that she had her monthly medical appointment with the psychiatrist. I could even give you his name. This despicable little gnome, and I'm sorry, I won't give the name because I could probably get sued because I call him a despicable gnome. Uh, To me, that's what he was. And she told him that she was so excited to do this, she couldn't sleep. He then said to her, this man is destroying you. You're about to have a breakdown. You're going to end up back in the hospital, which she hadn't had any hospitalizations for 15 years. This was a one-time affair. He put her on a heavy-duty sleeping pill. He doubled her medication went to the clinic director who was a friend of mine at least up until that day and said that I can't be trusted to treat her and she was removed from my care. I won't tell you how high my blood pressure was after this was done or how outraged I was that if at least you wanted to do something like that, you call me in advance and discuss it with me as if I really was a respected member of the staff having worked there for 25 years. But no, the social worker supervisor of the clinic said we can't afford to alienate the medical staff. I gave my resignation that afternoon. That was 1995. Done. Couldn't, I could not look at her and I did not want to and I can go through all kinds of terrible stories. For example, we used to have presentations by all kinds of different people, and after the clinic got into trouble, the only people who ever spoke were drug salesmen, drug reps from the company. And I remember one day uh, a marriage in which it was 50 years marriage or 45-year marriage, and the husband developed this idea he'd like to kill his wife. And we were told by the individual who put him on imipramine, which was one of the psychiatric drugs at the time, I think an antidepressant, but I'm pretty sure it was, that he had a couple of of, uh, neurons stuck in an up position, and this would lower them. And these were psychoanalysts, my friends. These were trained therapists. And they sat looking at the ground and didn't say a word. And of course, I'm sorry, Well, I'm not sorry. I'm proud. I opened my mouth and said, should we know something about the history of the marriage and their relationship and these people before we assume some neurons are stuck in the up position or the down position? And one of my friends, and a friend who's still a friend, mumbled, oh, he's at it again. I was a troublemaker. Very, very difficult to stay in a position like that. I didn't yell. I didn't scream. I just got up and I left. That was maybe a couple of months before the the the, the, the you know the, the, this this the final blow in which my patient was removed from me without discussion about what I might be have done to her that could have been inappropriate therapy, which I'm always willing to discuss. So our our our. The notion of psychotherapy begins with an experiencing human being, an individual who needs new knowledge, an individual who needs to grow, an individual who needs to find ways to take responsibility for the decisions that they learn to make about their life. All over our country, there are political arguments against the Constitution of the United States, against the idea that human beings should make their own decisions, that human beings have a right to protest, to get angry. All over, there are are studies that show that a majority of Americans think that the Constitution of the United States or the uh, Jefferson's uh, uh, Declaration of Independence, the preamble, which says we have a right to fight for ourselves, Uh, is a radical doctrine that should not be signed, should not be enforced. And I'm not making a big gap here. When you tell people they are defective, permanently defective, that their decisions can't be made and supported except for the fact that, that this is an illness, you have said to people there is no freedom. You are imprisoned. You are in a place from which there really is no escape. See, when you have real prison bars and real prison walls, maybe you can tunnel out, maybe you can climb over, maybe you can break out. But not from the feeling that you are defective in some way and your own judgment cannot be uh, helped. So we start out with the idea of full respect for another thinking, feeling human being. Uh, Other assumptions. How do you define mental health? It's not real health, since we're not talking about real illness. And I thought about this for a long time. I read a lot of philosophy. To me, mental health defines a good life. A good, happy productive, creative, loving, and moral life. Now, we're not going to get into a definition of morality. Uh, That's a very slippery concept. Uh, There are people who believe that morality can be defined universally. I don't believe that. I think morality is always in the eye of the beholder. But much of the time, we agree as to what is moral. We agree that you don't kill children, Uh, that you don't rape women, that you don't steal from somebody else. Uh, I wish the people who are now running the major corporations in the United States uh, would agree that this is morality. But ever since Hitler, we realized that there are people who could see the destruction of other human beings defined not as human beings as an eminently moral enterprise. So to create a universal morality, to me, uh, is is hopeless. But most of the people I've worked with over the years will accept basic common sense notions of what's right and wrong. You don't steal from your neighbor. You don't tell lies about them. Uh, The Ten Commandments aren't bad as a list, although five of them were destroyed. For those of you who have never seen the film The History of the World Part One a film by Mel Brooks. I recommend it, because there's this great scene in the movie in which Moses comes down holding three tablets. And he says, Children of Israel, I have fifth. And at that moment, one of the tablets breaks. I have ten commandments. And I used to play a game with my students. What were the other five? And I used to get some wonderful creative stuff about the other five. The only two that I have ever accepted as a list is one of the things is thou shalt respect thy mother and father. I think that mothers and fathers should equally respect their children. And the other one I've added to the Ten Commandments, uh, a twelfth, is thou shalt treat the planet they live on with the same respect as your own living room. Of course, I don't know what your living room looks like, but that's something I believe should be a commandment that the planet we live on should be treated with the same respect and the other animals that live in the planet should be treated with some of the same respect. Let's say that we have our house pets of dogs and cats uh, being treated. So, I believe then that psychotherapy should help an individual define a good life. And this is what I want you to do, boys and girls, if you go to a therapist. You're not going to find someone who advertises themselves as a psychotherapist with uh, therapy in, 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 in quotes. But you could find someone, and this includes psychiatrists, because some of the best therapists I ever met have been psychiatrists. And some of the people I know now, like Jim, is a psychotherapist in quotes, whether he knows it or not, and I think he does know it because he's respectful and we've talked about the way he goes about dealing with people and it really is not that much different except in some of the linguistics uh, that I treat people or try to treat people because I'm not always successful in in what I want to do. Some of the questions you must ask your prospective therapist and I take this from Lou Wynn, who is a good friend of mine, a psychologist in Albuquerque, who's written this wonderful little book called Healing the Hurting Soul, a survival manual for the black sheep in every family. Lou believes that most of what we call mental illness comes from the family in which there are triangulations in which there are political-type situations, I refer to them as political, in which a person ends up with a stigmata on their self sense of self uh, who, who lose their way in trying to figure out what's right or wrong, uh, what's true and what's not true, and end up suffering depressions and anxieties, etc. And he suggests that one of the things you should ask your therapist is, can you treat me without seriously diagnosing me. Now, this raises profound and difficult questions. When I read Greenberg's book that I talked about last week, he laughs with his patients about the diagnosis and says they're not so. On the other hand, he makes the diagnosis because if he doesn't, and he doesn't submit the insurance forms, he doesn't get paid, and the therapy in most cases, doesn't take place. But however we laugh at it and however we deal with it, those of us who are supposed to be moral and open and transparently honest with the people we deal with really shouldn't be entering into a collusion with the drug companies or the insurance companies about what we're saying. Because it is a collusion. If we don't believe it, I believe it's time for those of us who don't believe it professionally to stand up and say, we don't believe this nonsense, we want another system, and we want another language. And I don't feel uncomfortable tonight that I'm not laying out a different language, one that's free from medical terminology. So, ask your therapist that. Something I started to figure out many years ago, and tell people to do, is ask the therapist you're working with to show you the notes they write about you. If you ask your therapist, psychotherapist or psychiatrist, can you show me what you're writing about me, Uh, they vacillate, they say no, or they'll ask you, they'll make it a therapeutic game, why do you want to know this? And the answer is because it's about you. And if they're saying one thing about you and writing another, you should know that. It's your right. You are hiring the therapist. They are your employee. And if at any point you feel disrespected or you feel there's something going on that shouldn't be going on, fire the therapist and find someone who is a more honest, forthright employee. This, I think, is critical. And so I never write anything in a note that I wouldn't show a patient that I'm working with or someone I'm working with, because the word patient is also a difficult word for me. I gave it up. I used to refer to it as the people with whom I worked. Um, But that became cumbersome. And when I went back into the nursing home business, they became patients because everybody says they're patients. But in a psychological sense, they're not my patients. What I really think they are is my students. I think that good psychotherapy is an educational process. It is to help people redefine themselves, the story they live by, and the choices they make so that they can make better choices free from some of the stigmatizing labels that they, I'm no good, I shouldn't have been born, Again, these are not symptoms. These are attitudes and beliefs that people hold about themselves. Damaging, destructive beliefs. For which they've had a lot of help. I agree with Lewin. Although, I don't think it's just the family. We live in a world of labeling. We live in a world of dehumanizing labels. And it's our teachers, it's our clerics, It's the people uh, that we're surrounded with throughout our life who never let us describe how we feel and why we do things, but use labels. For example, somebody doesn't leave a tip. They're cheap. Why are they cheap? They didn't leave a tip. Why didn't they leave a tip? Because they're cheap. We don't see that we have gone around in a circle, that we have in logic committed a tautology, If we ask the person, why didn't you leave a tip, they may say, I don't have an extra money. Or, the waitress is my sister, I don't have to leave a tip. Or, I really didn't like the service at all and I wanted to make a statement. That is all descriptive, motivated reasoning behind the behavior that we don't like in the fact that they didn't leave a tip. Okay. So... Turn your therapist into a psychotherapist in quotes. If they won't work with you around the notes they take, if they won't work with you around the collusion that you're going to, to uh, uh, have, if they won't stop defining you as a sick individual for the, the, the behaviors that are so hard to understand and are being morally labeled, then maybe this is not a process for you. But this requires a tremendous amount of growing up and courage before you ever walk into the therapist's office. And it is my belief at having worked in the field now for 45 years that a great number of therapists are psychotherapists in quotes, a great number maybe the majority. So I think that may be all I can do for tonight. If anybody would like to call in and have a discussion with me on this issue, I believe that psychotherapy, when it's done right, is one of the more life-enhancing relationships that an individual can have, that most of our misery come from relationships, near or distant, or near because of distant relationships because of economic and political decisions that are made that affect us in profound ways <coughs> that prevent the more loving <coughs> creative uh, life from being ours I, I let me back up a second something before cuz i'm going to bother me that i didn't talk about this One of the goals I have for an individual, or several goals I would have for an individual for whom I think I'm really helping, would be to help them understand that life is a balance between being embedded in social relationships and being an individual. We all need to be part of a family. We need to be part of a village. We need to be part of a group. But we also need to speak in our own voice. Um, one of the difficult things about raising a child and having raised three and watching my three raise six is the struggle to help a kid figure out that they are an individual with a unique voice in all over the world. Their face is unique. Their brain is unique. The way they walk is unique. The way they talk is unique. And ultimately, there is, their thinking is unique. At the same time, their face is like all other faces. Their brain is like all other brains. They speak a language and experience uh, uh, what other people experience. So in the main, we are both in a conflict all the time between what's good for me And what is my loyalty to the group? And helping children or helping what I call patients achieve some notion of this is always one of the things that's forefront in my mind. How do I help a person express their unique individuality in a way that's helpful for those in the world around them? That they put real hard work into this, that they produce a work of art, whether it's a painting, whether it's a bread, whether it's a dance, whether it's an expression within sports. That's the best it could possibly be, but at the same time, enhances others' life because they understand it. Because if they don't understand it, then you're going to be called crazy because that's what we use the word for people we don't understand. Unwanted behaviors that we don't understand. We say crazy. And and, and by the way, the words that usually follow that are it makes no sense. And we forget that the word make no sense is really we. It makes no sense to us while it make, can make complete sense to the person who is engaged in that behavior. So, The second thing is, or the last thing I'm going to talk about tonight, is that because we're embedded in the larger world, we're all citizens. And our democracy requires that we're treated both as citizens responsible to one another, but as citizens with unique individual rights. If I understand the founding fathers and their struggle, uh, except for people of color, that's exactly what they were reaching for. And so I never considered somebody uh, finished with therapy until they tell me they're voting, that they are reading the newspapers and watching television and understanding some of the larger political and social uh, processes that are going on in the world. It is amazing to me when I hear that 90% of Americans don't have any idea Uh, that uh, there may be something called global warming, or that 80% won't sign a petition uh, that is printed up with the words of the Declaration of Independence or the preamble to the Constitution, that these are too radical. Uh, This terrifies me. It really does. And that as a psychotherapist, in quotes, I believe that an individual ultimately has to have a responsibility whether we reach this or not, uh, that they vote, uh, that they're part of the larger community, that they're part of their nation, that their family, their community, their school, their church, but that they remain true to their moral and individual beliefs. So I've done enough for tonight. I'm getting hoarse. Uh, I don't know how long I've spoken. Let's see, I started at 8 yeah, it's two minutes after nine. I think this is as long as anybody wants to listen. Uh, if Jim is there, I wish him a good evening. Uh, I hope we will remain friends forever and ever, uh, even though uh, I think on certain fundamental issues that uh, we really disagree. And um, I'm going to say to anybody else who wants to call in, I'm going to wait another 60 seconds. Uh and uh, I'd love to talk to other people. And I hope this show goes out into the world and is my most successful yet. I have shows now that uh, I don't know how long people stay on the on the show when they've clicked on. But I have stuff that has 3,000 uh, uh, people who have signed on to uh, listen. And that makes me very, very happy. So... If anybody's there, here I am. If you need therapy, I hope you will take an active hand in finding a therapist uh, who will be honest and transparent with you, that you will not be labeled with some permanent terrible uh, notion that you are disabled, uh, that you're uncurable, that you're a disease in remission, and like that. Okay, I'm going to end the episode.